Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have Philip Rosedale with us. And Philip has a, quite a background in virtual worlds. As many of you may know, Philip founded Linden Labs, creator of Second Life, in 1999. And Second Life was a wonderful virtual experience that capture, captured the world, and I remember playing in it uh, many times. And now Philip is taking the virtual world experience to another level with high fidelity, which he started in 2013. Once again, he's uh, way ahead of his time, and the high fidelity allows anyone to launch and share an interconnected virtual reality environment. So we'll learn more exactly what that means. And Philip has also started two other companies, which we can talk about. So, Philip, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, let's before we get into uh, high fidelity, could you give us a little bit of a background on yourself and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm a com- combination of being interested in engineering and entrepreneurship. I uh, started programming when I was uh, a kid in uh, middle school and really loved it. Uh, before that, I'd also done a lot of electronics, you know, so a little bit of hardware, and that's been helpful project that I've worked on. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, I think I was from a young age, always very entrepreneurial. I wanted to, you know, come up with business ideas. So and I put all that together and started a, a company uh, doing uh, database systems for businesses uh, in when I was a, a teenager in high school. And uh, I'd run around and hook up uh, uh, before the days of Ethernet, before the modern uh, TCP IP networks. I'd go hook up people's computers together uh, in businesses, uh, car dealerships, and, uh, an architecture firm, uh, built some really interesting software doing that. So uh, got into it, got into it really young. And then for me, the big moment, the big entrepreneurial moment, and you know, the, the moment for, for which the timing was, was really right was I got out of college with my, I got my degree in physics and got out of college and took my little software company up to San Francisco and arrived at San Francisco in two, uh, in 1994, which mm. was basically the epicenter of the consumer internet. And so, I had the good fortune of being able to suddenly be this young, ready to do anything and build anything entrepreneur. And I was lucky enough to land in San Francisco uh, there for the start of the Internet. So just looked around at the Internet and said, my God, you know, <laughs> you do absolutely anything you wanted to with this. But I had always had this uh, other kind of you know passion in my life, which was fascination that I think came both from physics and you know, my entrepreneurial, you know, zeal, I, I just had this fascination with, could you build another world inside a computer? A lot of people go in there. And that was what I just couldn't stop thinking about. Huh. So what was your first, uh, first company that you started up? Well, my first company was called, oh, yeah. I called it automated man, I, I called it automated management system. Okay. That was, that was my, that was my high school company. Okay, is that yeah. what you're asking? Yeah. What was the, was the one that uh, you built, and then I think you sold it at one. Oh, point. preview. Okay. Yeah. So the very first thing I did. So on arriving in San Francisco and discovering the internet, I said, "Well, I'm certainly going to, you know, start building things for for the internet, you know, for the web or, or yeah. you know, things that use 
TCP IP networking, which was the big, you know, that to me was a big innovation, was that you could send these packets around anywhere in the world from any computer to any other computer. And in 1994, that was like, you know, going faster than the speed of light or something. It was just so cool <laughs> to imagine that you could do that, you know, computer to computer. You just, it was just unbelievable. And so, the, but, so I, I wanted to, even, even then, even in 94, I wanted to build a virtual world. Um, I was super passionate about that idea. But in 94, basically, PCs couldn't do 3D. They just couldn't do it. it, 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 it we weren't there yet. Doom was around, but, uh, you know, video games like Doom, but they weren't really 3D. They were kind of faking. There weren't actually 3D capabilities in computers. So I, I said to myself, you know, hey, practically speaking, you're never going to make money on that, you know, enough to survive. You got to come up with something else to do. And so being interested in, in general in using the internet for communication more so than, you know, web browsing, I, uh, contrived at the idea that I would come up with a way to compress video and stream it over 28.8 modems so that you could basically have a video conference over the internet. And again, this was a completely unexplored idea at that time. And in fact, there's just one product in the world really that had been done, uh, it was a kind of a college experiment. It didn't work very well, but it was cool. It was called CUCV. And I looked at that and I said, well, wait a second. You know, I can do a much better job with that video quality than I can get it to work on a PC over Windows. And that's what I did. And I built this product and the product was called Freeview. And uh, what ended up happening was I ended up meeting the CEO uh, of a company called Real Networks, which is, you know, today that or creator of real audio and real yeah. video, and also today of Rhapsody. Those of us who use Rhapsody, uh, this company's still around, still doing, still doing well. And uh, I met Rob, and he convinced me to sell my company, my, my little video company, to Real Networks and join Real Networks as an early, you know, senior team member. The company was pretty small at that time, about sixty people. And I joined and was basically the video guy. I was the guy that was supposed to come up with what. Real video was going to be, and I did that. And I went on to become CTO of the company and had a lot of fun there and, and really got to learn a lot about, you know, management and growth. And we went public during that time and we, we grew when I left. It was 1999 and we were about 650 people. So wow. I got to have that, you know, crazy growth, you know, 10x growth in the size <laughs> of the company and the revenues and all that just a couple of years. Oh man, that, was, that must have been a great experience. So, after that, uh, you started uh, Linden Labs, and uh, and and you know I'm, I'm curious what a, you know you said you've always been interested in virtual worlds. You know what is it around virtual worlds that attracts you, or interests you so much? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is just the possibility of it. I mean, what in you know if we can create a great sort of planetary scale canvas and all go in there and start building things, what are we going to build? You know. I think I was just always just, I don't know, fascinated and awestruck by the idea that you, you might be able to do that with a computer and get to see what people were going to do. Um, I think I had a sort of an escapist bent to me as well. I mean, I think I always felt that I was a shy kid and very into computers and reading and, and, uh, and, and not, you know, totally socially comfortable. And so I think that the idea of creating my own world and being inside it, you know, I guess being able to, you know, have a bit of context or welcome people in or whatever, you know, get, get to, get to know people more easily there or whatever. I, I think that appeals to me as well. Um, but I also, because I had this interest in physics, I had a pretty solid command of the potential scale 
of things, both the sheer size that a virtual world could be, and also the fact that a virtual world could potentially kind of have life inside it, that 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 basically computers were going to grow to be able to simulate things at greater and greater levels of detail. And what that inevitably meant was that, you know, things like, you know, biosystems and evolution and, you know, maybe even human thinking and, uh, you know, all these things that we think of as being things you can only do in the real world. I, I had a, a, a real insight and a confidence, you know, as a young guy that those things could be, could be done on the computer. So I, so I was really struck by this idea that, you know, we may be, you know, ultimately kind of evolving into worlds that we build inside computers. And so that I think just uh, kept me going in those early days, you know, when Linden, Linden Lab, for example, was so early, we, you know, we could barely get this stuff to work, but I was just so confident that, you know, what we found in that world was going to be I'm just more and more amazed. And that, that was always how I approached it. Interesting. And I guess, uh, well, before we get into high fidelity, can, can you just give a, a brief overview on for the audience on Second Life in case they've been in a cave and don't know what it is? And, uh, and then, uh, well, yeah. Second Life, yeah, I mean, Second Life was intended to be a uh, an open uh, virtual world where people could basically come in and buy land and build things on the land that they bought and all that land would be next to each other. So it was literally a, you know, an expanding digital island that you could just come into and you could build yourself an avatar, you know, a digital body, uh, and you could make it look like anything you wanted to. And you could build literally, you know, kind of dig in the ground and build yourself a house and do whatever you wanted to do. And there was a real economy in it. So, if you wanted to make clothing and sell it to other people, for example, for them to wear on their avatars, uh, you could choose to do that. And in fact, as Second Life grew, uh, it became possible to do that as a living. And today, uh, there's, you know, somewhere between like a half, three quarters of a billion dollars a year mm. in people buying and selling digital things from each other. Things like clothing and wow. cars and furniture and toys and, you know, just anything. And that's why I think a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, you know, they, a lot of people probably think Second Life kind of went away, but there's still like a million people on there. On a, it's not, yeah, there's it's, actually as many, there's just about as many people as there ever were oh, at, 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 at the most. Uh, and so Second Life is still going strong. Now, there is one big challenge with Second Life, which was that I was just really early building it. And the big problem was that you had to do everything using a mouse and using the keyboard and your desktop monitor. And it turns out that that is really unbelievably difficult if what you're trying to do is move around and communicate and build in a 3D space. It's just too hard for people to do. And nothing we were able to do from a design perspective was able to solve that because the mouse was just not the right way to, to get in. You must have had to have quite a bit of processing power back then to, to run Second Life, especially when it started really taking off. Yeah, Second Life today, and, and at its largest, it, it's about 25,000 servers. Wow, okay. <laughs> a lot of machines. And back then, that was, you know, there was, you know, there was more, less servers per cubic foot, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, we had racks and racks and racks and racks of equipment. 
co-location facilities. So I did have those cool science fiction moments of like, you know, walking down the rows <laughs> of blue lights in the server farm and thinking there's a world in there with all these people walking around in it. And it was quite literally true. And I think I still have the good fortune of being one of the only people, you know, on earth to have ever actually done that, which we typically only see in science fiction. So what was one, before you get into high fidelity, what was one thing that kind of amazed you or surprised you with Second Life or a, a lesson learned? Well, everything surprised me, but certainly huh. the richness and the depth of people's creativity just blew me away. I mean, we we were going as fast as we could, but the construction tools that you had to use to build things in Second Life were really difficult to use. And, you know, we had a whole other language you had to learn to program. So the stuff that amazed me was the things that people made just because they wanted to, you know, just hmm. to delight each other or to, you know, blow, blow people's minds or whatever. And I remember, you know, one of the stories and one of the stories that actually kind of put us on the map with Second Life was that there was one place in this increasingly large world that all the new users came in. It was a kind of a, a corral, you know, think of a little work corral, you know, and the new users would sort of show up. So you can imagine that the, the existing users would hang around and, you know, kind of drink coffee and wait for the new people to show up and, and then, you know, hopefully be nice to them and teach them how the world worked. But one day, this one guy shows up who's been around in Second Life for a while, and he turns himself, he makes himself an avatar that is a perfect, you know, Area 51, you know, Roswell alien. <laughs> and then he makes himself a little disc, you know, alien spaceship. And with with the help of a bunch of scripting that was extremely difficult to do at the time. So I was just, we were just aghast. I mean, I mean or agog, you know, that this guy could have this. <laughs> Uh, he basically created, you know, like a listing ray that would come out of the bottom of his little spaceship. And because when you logged in for the first time in this virtual world and because you were on the mouse and keyboard, even though you could look up straight up in the sky, you didn't typically do that. So this guy would basically sit there over the what we call the welcome area. And the other users, of course, would be sitting around, you know, somewhat in cahoots because they know this guy was there. And you'd come in as a new user and, you know, you'd be trying to get your bearings, put your avatar together or whatever. And this guy would turn on, you know, the lifting ray, and he'd suck you up. You could actually lift somebody up off the ground as an avatar. And he'd suck you up into this spaceship, close the doors, all of this he had scripted. And then he would drive off, never saying anything. You'd be, you know, as a new user, you'd be, what? You know, what's going on? He'd drive off, and then he'd take you over like some dance club or something that's far away in the world. And he'd open the doors, drop you out of the thing in the middle of these, you know, people as a hapless new user, and then he'd fly off and he'd, without a word. And then he'd go back and he'd do it to the next new user. And somebody at some point basically wrote a blog that said, I was abducted by aliens in Second Life. And at this time, we were quite small. And somebody like, I think, Wired Magazine picked this up and ran it. And we got tons and tons of people coming in. And I, I just remember that was one of those things where you were just like, this is so awesome. You know, how could this guy, how could this guy have put the time in to figure out all this, you know, very difficult stuff that he had to do. That's a good story. And that's a good uh, segue into high fidelity, I think. And uh, I mean, and it's interesting that article you mentioned about being abducted by aliens because, you know, we talked before this, you know, I've um, been in the high fidelity a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's just a, I mean, that, that, um, that experience would be that, would be that much more amplified in using virtual reality. Cause it's such like a right. personal experience. Like even though no one knows who I am and what I look like, it still is like a 
really personal experience and that's just going to get uh, more and more personal as things get more realistic and uh but we, we can get into that so anyways um <laughs> so i guess uh can you do you may want to just uh give a brief overview on high fidelity and then we'll kind of get into the into the details a little bit more sure well in terms of the capability high fidelity is very much like second life and it's designed to be one that allows people to build anything in a virtual world and then at the same time it allows them to be in their face-to-face with each other and this time a couple of things are different you know the big one is that we now have these head-mounted displays we have these new hmds which are of course why everybody's talking about vr lately and in addition to that and this is actually somewhat more important some of the hmds and an increasingly large number of them have this ability to use your hands completely naturally, you know, by holding on to these little gadgets and probably in the next year or two by wearing gloves. And your hands are modeled completely accurately and can basically, this, this enables you to use both your head and your hands, <clears throat> both for uh, communicating. That is to say, you can now turn your head to look at who's talking to you and you can gesture with your hands and you can, you know, you can look, you know, people can see you nodding, you know, all of that stuff carries across perfectly, perfectly. You know, you've seen it using high fidelity. And then the second thing is you can use those, your hands and your head to basically build, you know, move, you know, navigate, fly, make modifications to the environment. And because of the difference between the HMD and the mouse, which is the difference between two degrees of freedom from the mouse and 18 degrees of freedom with your head and your hands in there. Uh, it's a, just an enormous difference. Then the second thing that's different about high fidelity is that because we are anticipating a world where there are millions of servers, billions of people using it and millions of servers, we designed the architecture of high fidelity to kind of skip to the ultimate end where we think it's all going, which is, Everybody deploys their own servers mm. in the same way that people deploy web servers today. So we designed the architecture with the assumption that VR is going to be a billion user scale phenomenon. And I think myself and my team members here and, and the folks at Second Lines as well, I think, are uniquely aware of how true that's likely to be. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, you know, your tutorial at the beginning, you know, it's really interesting because you have like, have the person like practice right like by grabbing a firecracker and throwing it in a fire which is a uh, quite clever right and it's pretty fun i'm like i could just do that all day <laughs> just and uh Not yeah so so how and well this is a big question but how in the world did you develop high fidelity and like um because just you know like, it kind of has that peer-to-peer but then on top of that you have the ability people for people to build their own worlds um, I I don't know where I'd start. <laughs> so, I mean, you had the experience of it's second life. It's been a big but, project. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I imagine. Uh, well, part of it is I did second life, so you know yeah. you get a standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, I, I had the ambition. I, I guess I had. I felt a great degree of certainty that I could build this. I don't think anybody else, starting from scratch, would have put together such an ambitious plan because they. You know, not having known kind of how things would go and, you know, having, I think one of the, one of the big intuitions that drives me and has turned out to be very true is that there are so many people willing to help with something this important. 
Hmm. There's so many people willing to help us build the virtual world because, you know, it's going back to that, you know, billion dollars a year economy. You know, those people are staking their lives, you know, in this new world. And so, for example, we've done, we've done high fidelity entirely as open source. And that has enabled already, you know, hundreds, you know, or so people to help us develop software. So we get a boost out of doing it that way. And there's a lot of other things like that that I think have just been intuitions that have enabled us to be confident that we could build such a big project with such a small team. But as you say, it is an enormous project with a lot of moving parts. And if somebody wanted to build uh, their own new world, how do they go about doing that? Well, you download our software. The same software that is kind of the browser to look around to get into the world is also the server. So if you go to our site today, you know, highfidelity.com slash download, there's just a download there. And as soon as you download and install that software, it actually puts a little server on your computer right there, right where you, where you are. And then you can mm-hmm. jump into that server. And in fact, that fun tutorial where you're blowing up firecrackers is actually your server. That is, once you're done with the tutorial, you can tear up that whole server and, you know, make it a basketball court or whatever you want to do. Um, so you're, you, you get your own server when you install it, and that server has a name, and you can actually share that name with your friends. We give you a temporary name that you can share. There's a little share button on the thing, and it'll tell you the name of your server. You can have your friends over right away. I can see people on our uh, dashboard right now that we have here in the office. They're doing that. You know, hundreds of servers that are up right now. Uh, that are there are people's private servers. And uh, yeah, you can just jump in and, and get started. It's, 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 I wouldn't say that it's completely easy yet, you know, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's up and running and people that have a little interest in having their own virtual space can definitely do it right now. Huh. What, what languages or tools do people use to create their world? Well, uh, you can import 3D models from standard formats, the most common, the two that we support right now being FBX and OBJ, which means that there are millions of 3D models that you can even freely download at a variety of different sites um, uh, that that, that allow you to basically import, you know, sort of almost drag and drop content directly into your world. For things that you want to make interactive, like if you want to make a, whiteboard pen or a gun or, you know, a, a toy of some kind that moves. Uh, to do that, you have to use JavaScript. We chose this time, in Fidelity, to use the world's most mm, uh, well-known programming language, yeah. which is JavaScript. And so all the interactive content is done with JavaScript. So if you've got JavaScript experience, you can actually jump in there and start uh, building uh, interactive content as well, which a number of people are already uh, doing and some of those we actually have a very early version of a marketplace up and running. You can't charge for things yet, but you can share things with people, and that marketplace is uh, uh, already contains things that people program. That was my next question: Is one of the when the marketplace was coming? But you kind of actually answered. I mean, when do you think you'll actually be able to buy and sell? I imagine it would help uh, user adoption because then you know, like you like the Second Life, people could actually you know devote time to it and get paid and um, yep. really, yeah. Yeah, we, we anticipate turning on uh, money in our marketplace probably in the next uh, two quarters. Oh, wow. So soon. Oh, we're, soon. we're working on Oh, that'll be exciting. Okay. And uh, let's see, we're, and we're almost out of time here. I, one question I had was, you know, when do you think, so, you know, the conference calls are 
for a business meetings, let's say online are just horrible. And it'd be awesome just to be able to like set up your own room, right. in high fidelity, everyone get in there. And, and, uh, so that'd be really interesting. And then with that is, you know, when would it be possible to have like a, a very uh, realistic looking avatar, maybe even own your own facial expressions eventually. Um, you know, what we, I actually interviewed Holly, who's a researcher developed like this algorithm to, to, well, Oh, you know how? Okay. Yeah. So really, yeah. Doing really interesting stuff. And, uh, so I'm like, wow, when, when can high fidelity get this stuff? <laughs> well, uh, the kind of work that how is doing is yeah. already built into high fidelity today. We actually started really, uh, and we worked with his team a bit. Uh, uh, we have the ability to watch your face with a 3d camera and animate it today. Now with head mounted displays, we sort of have a different problem because now you've got to basically put the camera on the head mounted display. Uh, we've worked with a small company called binary VR that uh, has actually developed a custom camera that they're, uh, you know, doing a, a Kickstarter on. And that camera is a camera that you can stick on to a head mounted display and it'll move your avatar's face to match what your face is doing. Even if you don't have those cameras though, we do uh, move your avatar's lips in response to the audio that is, you know, coming out of your mouth or the microphone. And that actually works surprisingly well when it's used in conjunction with your head and your hands uh, moving, you know, fluidly so that someone else can see them. So I do believe, actually, that it's mostly a matter of hardware adoption that will keep uh, business users from beginning to replace business travel with yeah. high fidelity. Um, and I think it's going to take a little while. I, I think the adoption curve for VR is going to be on the scale of smartphone, that is, we're looking at seven to 10 years for billions of people using these devices. But that curve, of course, you know, starts now. We've already got, you know, you know, I don't know probably the better part of a million people out there starting to use this stuff. And uh, uh, I think we're going to get there in that period of time. So I would expect that, you know, widespread, you know, kind of Skype-like business use, we might see that starting to happen in the next like, three years. But today, uh, smaller teams that are, Exploring uh, high fidelity for use in business meetings, uh, it's, it's already doable. Uh, we have our own company meetings, as you can imagine, in high fidelity. And it's a ton of fun being able to talk with your hands and look right into somebody's eyes as an avatar. It's just enormously better than have 3D audio where you hear you know, the person on your left and the person on your right exactly where they are. Uh, it's just enormously better than using video conferencing. So I think the fun factor of it and the utility of being able to, you know, practically, you know, get into a group meeting that really works uh, will make the, the use of VR as a replacement for business travel start mm. to happen. Uh, you know, today for smart, early, you know, about three to four years for widespread well, business use. I'm ready because, yeah, like you say, replace business travel. And I mean, the business units, of course, they spend lots of money. You'll have the the telepresence systems. I mean, this is just takes it to another level. And like you said, even with just having kind of a generic avatar right now, I mean, if this get better, it's still like such a personal experience compared to even yep. like uh, being on Skype. But all right. So we're pretty much out of time. I do have one more question for you. I, I was curious uh, and I have so many more questions for you. So I might have to ask you on in the next years again, but uh, um, what, uh, um, what's one of your, uh, favorite books or movies about VR? 
Well, of course, the one that's just great that you know has been written recently is Ready Player One. Oh yeah, Ernest Klein, and I, I got the chance to show uh, Ernest our no way uh, work <laughs> a while ago, which was a lot of fun. You know, to get the author and say, "Hey, we're actually building." But uh, I think that book is amazing because it forecasts one of the things that I think is definitely going to happen with high fidelity of VR, which is its use in education. Talks about kids going to school wearing a headset, and I think that's going to happen. I have four kids myself, and I'm pretty darn sure that they will, you know, not finish school without taking at least some of their class time, you know, in a headset. And I think that's one of the amazing things that's going to happen. I think there's a, there's a million great books on VR. The other one that I think of is uh, and a, a much older uh, story uh, by a guy uh, who teaches down in San Diego named Werner Bengi. His story was called True Names, which was one of huh. uh, uh, it was in the early 80s, I believe, that he wrote that. It was one of the really original imaginations of what uh, what a world of avatars uh, together, you know, a big virtual world would look like. It's pretty inspiring. Interesting. I haven't heard, yeah, I haven't read that one. The the Ready Player One, I was, I was hoping to say, that's one of my yeah, that book is just amazing. To be honest, it was, yeah, very inspiring. Amazing that book. story. Yeah. yeah, it is. I'm like, this guy knows how to write, um, and and imagine. Um, all right. Well, I think that pretty much does it for our interview. So, uh, Phil, definitely appreciate you taking the time, and you have such a rich right. experience. I mean, you have probably the richest experience in the virtual worlds of anybody <laughs> anywhere. So, I'm trying. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but definitely appreciate it, and. uh I'll I'll keep tracking what you guys are doing and keep uh, playing around with high fidelity and uh, and I think the audience will too more and more in the future. So thanks, Philip. Excellent, great to talking. Excellent, and, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyer Labs. As always, I greatly appreciate it. All right, bye everyone.